Hello and welcome to another episode of Perspectives. In today's episode, we have Paul Maudsley. Paul is a watch expert and former auctioneer, having worked for some of the biggest auction houses in the world, Philips and Bonhams, and has sold thousands upon thousands of watches in that time. In today's episode, we discuss why being an auctioneer gives you the best training in the world, how an auction works and the evolution of auctions over this time, how items get sourced for an auction, some standout stories from Paul's tenure as an auctioneer, and much, much more. Paul has an incredible amount of knowledge in this field, and even for those of you who are not particularly interested in watches, it is a great insight into the fascinating world of auctions. A massive thank you to Paul for doing this episode with me, and I really, really hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, Paul Maudsley. very warm welcome to the show thank you very much for for joining me no thank you for having me watch expert and former auctioneer now running your own business can you tell me a little bit about how it all began how you became an auctioneer well i mean it's it's quite a long story really but um it's my love for watches came in very early on um i was very much a sort of mechanic minded child and it stemmed from the first wristwatch I ever received it was a gift from my grandmother when I was about 12 or 13 and that sort of set me off in a sort of horological mind uh, I, I got a little bit late into auctions and that was 1999 was the first auction I had when I joined Bottoms as a junior cataloger and yeah, from that moment onwards, um, worked my way up through the ranks and uh, did in total 20 years uh, working for two auction houses, Bonhams and Phillips. So yeah, best training in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. I mean, you know, I was at the weekend with another gentleman who's working for another auction house, a bit smaller provincial auction house, and we're just discussing it. And my son joined me as well on the trip to Geneva, and it was very much about sort of my son was wow. It's listening to you guys talk. It's all about numbers and watches, and he felt so out of depth. And I says, you know, you can't. It is literally, excuse the pun. It is time which builds mm-hmm. that up. And because I've been doing it so long and know so many watches, you know, I think I actually impressed my son, which is always quite hard to do as a father. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so yeah no it's it, it is one of those things and and you know you do build up a knowledge basis and auctioneers are you know working for an auction house i always say is the best way of learning yeah uh, there's no other there's no other way of getting that kind of spread across many different fields of uh horology really from through the various watchmakers Contra, Piaget, rolex Cartier, patek philippe you're selling all of those from a few hundred pounds up to many thousands and thousands of pounds. So, yeah, perfect way to learn. Um, it's, well, I would say a lot of people nowadays uh, feel as though they can just learn off Instagram. Uh, I think that's sometimes quite a bit of a downfall for them. Really. Yeah. Um, it's a great tool. Uh, it works for me. It works for many other people. Uh, 
but the information can often be uh, incorrect. Uh, that's always frustrating for someone like myself who's a bit bit of an eye for detail and correctness when it comes to history, watches, etc. Yeah, yeah. I had a guest on recently, and he told me about the Dunne Kruger effect. It's called. Uh, oh. That's effectively you learn a little and you think you know a lot and then you learn a bit more and realize you actually know nothing at all <laughs> so i think i think when you you talked about the instagram side of things there that's probably that sort of part of the curve where they may have you know seen a little bit about it i know rolex and, and things like that and watches have really come into you know the popularity exploded popularity mm-hmm. over the last few years and i think mm-hmm. the rise of that on social media is probably contributing to that where they go okay I've seen this guy post about it. I've watched a few videos on YouTube. I therefore know everything I need need to know about watches. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to be honest, I think I've fallen into that trap a bit myself in, in terms of it wasn't until like I went to the Red Bar meet, but the first one I went to, and I was like, oh, I know a fair bit about watches. And then you go there and you realize you know absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, you know, but the, the, I think if you've got a passion for learning, those going to meetings, um, you know, and, you know, all those things combined can really sort of create a good learning uh, database for you. Um, some people are just quite lazy, but it's any any industry that lazy people who just expect to 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 get the information quick and, 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 and often call themselves experts. But, uh, you know, I think you, you know, every day is a school day, as they say, isn't it? And, I, I, you know, even though I've been doing this 20 plus years actually probably a bit longer uh, i've sold probably nearly twenty five thousand watches in my time uh you know I, i'm constantly learning and that's what you know keeps me into this sort of uh, business hobby passion yeah uh keeps it exciting f- for me and, and other people you know is is that ability I, I love history and i love learning so you know even like just two days in geneva three days uh you know there's you're seeing watches and then you're seeing little little differences of nuances and these kind of things and you come away and you you, you know you feel fantastic just getting that information i feel it's me personally yeah it's, it's it's great seeing these you know watches sell for high prices but there's also great just you know you can handle these things and and, and soak up the information so that's fantastic yeah i found that auctions are actually quite a, a fascinating spectacle to watch from the ones i've seen um, I think oh, they're a, it's a bit of a course, yeah. bit of a far cry from from bargain hunt and homes under the hammer that probably most people listening in the UK used to <laughs> from seeing it on the telly. <laughs> well, the problem with those 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 uh, programs, I mean, they they make good television and they're they're fun, and I think they're sort of as a demographic they're targeting, but they 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 always get it the wrong way around. So they 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 buy from a dealer, then try to sell at auction so they'll go to a shop and buy some little piece of ceramic for 50 pounds and then they'll put it into the auction it sells for 15 and it's all a bit sad but because the dealer bought it for 50 and he's making his margin at 50 so yeah. you know they're always up a uphill battle with those programs yeah but their auctions are amazing and i you know even though i've been out of them for the last four or five years now I still attend all the auctions in Geneva and in the UK, and um, yeah, it's still it's part of my life and always will be. But there's the theatre, there's the buzz, uh, you know. Even though I don't work for Philips now, the the Geneva auctions um, are simply the best. You know, you're in this huge marquee. There's upwards of 350 to 400 people there. Pretty much got the world's best auctioneer for watches 
Arel backs there, sort of going between four different languages, telephone bidding. You know, it's it's a yeah. wonderful spectacle. Whether you've you like watches or not, you just you see it. You see the things on the screen. You look at the currency converters. You, you know, you sit. You know, you're seeing watches sell for more than probably the houses you live in, and uh, it's it's quite crazy world. Yeah, but yeah, very exciting, very exciting. Yeah, I, I became familiar with Oral backs in. I think it was about 2017. Obviously, the the famous mm-hmm. Newman Daytona that sold. Perhaps you can talk yes. about that a little bit in a bit. Um, but he there was a there was a program uh, or a video that was done by Mister Porter, and it was following that that um, oh yeah yeah that sale. Right, yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of really I, I was I was quite interested in watches at the time, but I think that was one of the videos that really really yes. got me into them as well. Just sort of seeing how passionate he was about them and things like that. So. Yeah, I think it helps yeah. us. An auctioneer, the art of auctioneering is 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 quite something. Now, if, if your auctioneer can speak multiple languages, it does help. But the, when you've got an auctioneer who is obviously a watch specialist as well, or a specialist in their specialist subject, so to speak. So if if you've got a picture specialist, an old master picture specialist selling old masters, there's a there's a obviously a knowledge base there. There's a passion. There's an interest. So that comes across in the actual auctioneering. So Arel, you know, obviously knows watches, is an expert on watches. Um, so this comes across, whereas you can often see uh, the major auction houses will just have, uh, you know, very good auctioneer, but you, you lose something in the translation when they don't know. I mean, for instance, just the other day in Geneva, there was the auctioneer was pronouncing the watch name is wrong. It's a little bit annoying to me as a bit of a perfectionist, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, it didn't stop people bidding, but it, it, it's you know you can when you see a few different auctioneers, you can really see how good some of the best ones are. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So, for those of us who are not familiar, can you explain to us how an auction works and perhaps the styles of auction that you might encounter? Well, I mean, auctioneers. I mean, you know, it's been around for hundreds of years. I think when Bonhams was founded in seventeen ninety-six, could be wrong there. Stop check that one. <laughs> I should remember after working there for seventeen years. Uh, and most auction auction houses back in the day started off selling books. Uh, it was very much there. That was the first sort of the way they did them. Then they went into houses uh, in terms of house sales and furniture, and then they started separating into different sort of fields, mainly into the sort of twentieth uh, century. Um, so yeah, very simple process, really. Uh, a, 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 a an item, whether it's a watch or a piece of furniture, is put into a sale. It's catalogued, and uh, the auctioneer will basically put that through the sale. And it can go online now. It can, there's so many different options of way of buying these things, mm. um, promoted via social media channels. When I first started, we didn't have Instagram. Uh, we had a website and. Uh, it was very much the printed catalog was the was the main selling tool. So um, the information all in that was done by a specialist, and you could read the descriptions. So it's still to this day printed catalogs haven't gone away, and I don't think they will. Uh, I still like getting a printed catalog. You know, I can page turn on my uh, laptop on my phone, but there's something a bit more tangible about turning the pages of a catalog, and you tend to read the descriptions more. Yeah, tend to the details yeah. more. I think the way we consume information now, on especially with our mobile devices and and technology these days, is, is designed to be consumed quickly. Whereas I think if you have a something mm. in your hand, you can really go at your own pace. 
you can on online, but I think it's I don't know. I I end up skim reading when I'm reading. Well, that is it. You know, on, on a book, for example, <laughs> I'm very guilty of that myself. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a habit where we're all doing now, and uh, we're not we're not we're giving so much information, but we're not actually taking in a lot of that information. Mm. Uh, I don't know how we get around that. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. And in terms of the role of an auctioneer, what what can one expect from from an actual auctioneer? Well, I mean, as an auctioneer, you, the, the role is really to is looking after the uh, seller of the item. It's, it's it's the ability to to get the best possible price for the seller. Obviously, you're looking after your buyers in a sense, but it, you know it's a it's a commission basis. So uh, the more the watch sells for, the more commission the auction house gets. So you know their 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 best interest and uh, is to get uh, the best possible price, and um, you know often set, you know sometimes you can be in an auction room and an auctioneer can be taking quite a while on selling a lot, and you know there's sometimes you hear grumbles from people go oh, I wish I'd hurry up, but I would say you know if that was your watch they were selling you would want them to take the best possible time to to squeeze the maximum amount of bids out of that watch. <laughs> yeah, hundred. You know, right, you do not want the auctioneer to start it at one thousand and quickly drop the hammer at eleven hundred. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah. yeah, and going back to when you first started, so you're, you know, obviously back when you you told us about when you started, then to your most sort of recent auction tendencies, there's just this weekend in Geneva. Have you seen much of a shift or a change in the environment or dynamic of auction houses? Certainly there is. I mean, when I first started at Bonhams, the clock and watch sales were together. And so you'd have long case clocks, you'd have the pocket watches, you'd have wristwatches. But back in then, so around about the year 2000, predominantly I loved watches. I love all horology, but wristwatches uh, were my thing, really. So I decided to split the sales, uh, which was a bit bit of a shock to a lot of clients because there's Oh well, I, you know, I, I I want all clock and watch sell together, but the crossover was very different. I was just seeing that the clock buyers were very different to the watch buyers, the wristwatch buyers, and the market was getting stronger as a whole. So it worked out very well in the end, and they've never looked back really. Uh, so that that's a, a big sea change really. And all the auction houses started separating sales, and uh, um, major major auction houses were selling huge amounts of wristwatches rather than just clocks. And yeah, so now it's very much wristwatches and pocket watches occasionally feature. Sotheby's had a sale on yesterday, actually, in Geneva. It was a, it was a very important collection of enamel pocket watches. But that room was full of buyers who weren't there for, who, who do not buy wristwatches. You know, so mm-hmm. they're, they're all into the pocket watches. So there's been a change in that. The amount of people attending the sales huge numbers now uh you know back in the day when i first started we used to have sales in in lots road in chelsea and the little watch sales you'd probably get 20 to 30 people in the room yeah you know uh and you weren't getting the online presence uh there was just no sort of you know you could telephone bid or you can leave a commission bid so commission bid is where you uh, write in or email the auction house with a maximum amount you wish to go to or wish them to go to. Uh, and they, they have it on the auctioneer's book and the auctioneer will see the name, see the lot and say, right, that's a thousand pounds. I will go to that 
amount and try and secure it for this client. Now there's obviously there's internet bidding live, there's telephone bidding. Again, that's been around from the start, but there's 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 many more options now on the bidding. You can even sit in the room in Geneva this weekend have with with clients and they're sat on their apps and bidding through the apps, even though they're in the actual auction room. Being discreet about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of confidentiality <laughs> confidentiality people like. Uh and also there's the flip side of people like being seen to be bidding. Hmm. You know, being there in the, in, the, in, the, in the big theatre and the hands going up in the air and people looking and acknowledging, oh, so 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 it's just spent seven hundred thousand. Oh, that's interesting. So, you I'll know, I'll go seven hundred one. Oh, weird. But there is there is that aspect to it as well, which all always makes it very interesting. I find I think if you if you've never been to an auction before, you should go. Yeah, I, I have never attended one in person, but I did rewatch the sale of the Paul Newman Daytona from mm-hmm. 2017. And to some people watching an auction, or at least rewatching an auction, especially when you know the outcome might seem a bit dry and dull, but I must admit, I was absolutely fascinated by it. It was it was tense, it was exciting, and mm-hmm. especially as the bidding was you know creeping up to those ast- astronomical numbers, it it became just really exciting and i had a i had a big grin on my face by the end of it and you know you could obviously watching a, a piece of history in the making at yes. the time it was a world record at the time wasn't it was it 17, it was 17.7 million dollars was it 17.3 i think it was yeah three yeah it was a, it was an unusual watch because there was obviously huge anticipation for the watch and you have to remember to for your listeners that that actual watch itself is a rolex uh, reference 6239 so it's got the exotic dial official name um and uh the paul it's a paul newman so it's a, a, a typical um sort of newman dial and that watch normally would be about 120 150,000 pounds at the time so you know there was lots of uh pre-sale interest in that lot and when i was at bottoms we actually did the valuation on that it's about, probably about 10 to 15 years prior to that and i think i estimated at 600 800,000 um and how wrong you were <laughs> well this is what i mean there was no actual estimate on it when it was sold at phillips uh i think there was there was talk of it making perhaps three or four million you know it's everybody had an opinion uh, and whenever you, there's a big lot coming up everybody all the keyboard warriors will throw in some things not mm-hmm. having no knowledge or substantiate but it it started at ten million, which always was a slight little disappointment for me, uh, because and it only started at ten million because one of the uh, uh, well, one of my old colleagues sh- shouted out ten million. <laughs> so, you know, I I just feel that it would have been nicer, even though it did take still a long time to sell the actual mm-hmm. item. I think it would have been nice if it if it started at you know even at one point five, one point eight, then gone up from there. Uh, now the person who did shout out that was, you know, they had a client who's very keen and who came in and, um, probably asked her to shout out 10 million and wanted to get in there and dispel, you know, all the other people who were involved. Cut the, cut the wheat from the chaff, as they say. Yeah. But it's, it's also a part of me and I'm making talk about this now because I don't work for the auction house anymore, but it was a, it was a, it was a, I felt as though, you know, there were some very big important people in the room who'd never bought before with the auction house 
who are there as as part of that theatre, who wanted to be part of it, and also wanted to be seen to be part of it, who had these special paddles to bid. You know, you needed to be checked over because they, well, obviously it was anticipation that it was going to do very well. It's a golden paddle, I think they called them. And yeah, so straight away it just stopped those people being a part. You know, um, so yeah, that was my my view on it anyway. It still did incredibly well. And yeah, it's a great thing to watch. Always recommend anyone watch. I don't know, but I think it'd take twenty minutes or something to sell. Yeah, it was quite as well. Twenty yeah, twenty twenty minutes or so. So I'd like to talk about how you actually acquire items and how they're they're sourced for an auction in particular. Do you have a standard criteria that needs to be met when searching for items or, or what might you look for when you're looking for a, a piece to sell? Well, Whenever you're looking for watches for sale, you're always looking for, ideally, you're looking for watches from the original owners or the original owner's family. So, you know, then you've, you've, you've bypassed this sort of, it's, you know, it's authenticity, provenance, and this kind of thing. You just, you know, if you're sat, sat down in the front room of a, a terrace house with a family in Guildford, for instance, or wherever it is in the UK, if you're sourcing watches and you've got their father's Rolex submariner from 1969 you, you already you know this is a really nice fresh to the market watch and the market always likes watches like that you know if they come out with their box and papers even better so but to get those things you you know all auction houses go off their social media their past sales they do advertising in newspapers we used to do i used to do valuations all over the world you know regional offices in rome uh, in Dusseldorf, in Madrid, and there would be adverts in television, uh, you know, in uh, newspapers. Sorry, and yeah, you know, watch specialists coming over and uh, two days, and you know, I saw some of the the rarest and finest watches from some of the regional offices in the UK and Europe. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a whole way of getting these things in. Also, people come to uh, the reception counters of the auction houses. You know, just oh, I've got a pocket watch. You know, some of the best watches I've got were when people have brought in a pocket watch and I've noticed them wearing a quite rare wristwatch. So, you know, you suddenly just dismiss their, you know, £100 Waltham pocket watch and you're suddenly looking at their rare Rolex Daytona that they've been wearing for 40 years and not really thinking much about the value. Yeah, I was uh, I was saying to Sam, I had Sam Halesen on from Watch Concierge Services a few episodes mm-hmm. ago and there was... A story that I told her that stuck out to me, and it was a it was a chap I work with, and he has a a Daytona. I think it's a one one six five two zero, really nice piece. I think he acquired it for sort of seven thousand pounds at the time. So yeah, yeah, going back a few years now, and he keeps getting sort of asked the question of why don't you sell it? You've got you know a, a really expensive you know wristwatch that you could sell and make a lot of money on, I think, on a twenty, thirty thousand pound or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. And he just turned around and said, I wouldn't have a watch then. And I I, I think that was <laughs> great because it's it's a nice story because it's his watch. It doesn't matter the the monetary value is of no interest and it is, you know, just his taste, his everyday wear and I think it's quite refreshing to hear hear stories like that as well. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Even though you know, I'm in a world with watches, with auctions, uh, I buy and sell. You know, with my business, I'm in now, and 
you know, you have to remember some to some people it is just literally something that is on their wrist. They've only got one, and that's they're quite happy with that one. And uh, but when the value of some an item becomes too too much for that person, it becomes more of a liability than an asset. Uh, they then will, you know, obviously part with their things. So I sold not long ago uh, relics uh, Sabana, but it's a three six nine dial. Uh, it's a rare watch, and the client says, "But well, I love this watch. I love the look of this watch." And I said, "Well, you know, it's something that I can buy, and then we can find you a nice Submariner for sort of twelve thousand, as opposed to a hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, so that that sometimes could work for them. So they've still got a watch, which is, you know, hey, can still tell the time on, but also that looks very similar. So, yeah, these things are, are very personal to people, and you know, going back to what you're saying about how you find things, sometimes you get." calls from the strangest of things. I had a mm. call from a barber shop in um, um, yeah, Croydon and he says, oh, I've just uh, a, a cut of hair for a gentleman and he's, he's sat here with me now. And he was actually in the shop and the, the Italian barber noticed the Rolex Daytona on his wrist and uh, he says he was interested in a price. And I, I actually gave him a, a price, a rough estimate. Hadn't seen it, obviously, but going yeah. to the gentleman's description. Uh straight you know while the gentleman's having his hair cut in the barber shop in the end he brought it in it was a beautiful watch he got it for his 21st birthday present in 1969 born human daytona reference 6239 uh, like paul newman's watch and uh box papers um you know incredible and i sold it at the time i think it was a record at the time for 95,000 pounds wow uh yeah easy yeah wow yeah you just can never tell where these things come from You, you 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 try as a you know working for auction houses. You have marketing departments. You have meetings with them. You look at the best ways of doing things, and sometimes these some of the best things come in, you know, the the, the, the most unusual ways. Yeah. Speaking of sort of memorable events, do you have any other memories or stories that stand out to your time in uh, as an auctioneer? I know there was a I heard one about your tales of uh, a Mister Zimmerman. That was quite an interesting story. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Of course, that's going back to all. That was 2002, actually. That was a fantastic collection, which we did uh, a single owner catalogue for. And uh, there's a gentleman called Mr. Zimmerman, and he was a he passed away, a big collector, uh, stroke hoarder of uh, uh, all things horological uh, clocks, pocket watches, wristwatches, movements, parts, tools incredible and we were very lucky to to get that to sell and we had a house in Tunbridge Wells which was ironically 14 years later I moved just around the corner to where the house was uh, I'd never been to Tunbridge Wells at the time but I went down with the value one of the valuation chaps uh, from Bonhams and we had to go through everything uh, the whole house and all the bits and bobs and incredible watches you know some were hidden behind a built-in cupboard which if i hadn't found would have been sold with the house oh. uh and he was he had basically uh watches behind a mahogany built-in cupboard uh which had been there since sort of 1900s or something like that so he'd adapted the back of it and he had all these super rare pocket watches hidden in a concealed um a door and they're all on fishing wire hung around the back. Well, so you, so you found Narnia essentially, is what you're... pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> but we we only found it because when I was, he had another uh, apartment in Rome, 
And we found it because we found some paperwork just by chance with a hand drawing of the uh, the cupboard. And, oh. it, and it also showed us how to open uh, uh, a concealed drawer in the cupboard in Rome. And then we found a uh, crucifix clock, clock sorry, from about 1640 uh, and another couple of rare pieces. So, yeah, these, these are things that sh- I, I look back now and think, gosh, if we hadn't found those, they could yeah. still be. Still be in theirs, yeah. That's yeah. real. That's real treasure hunting. That is. Yeah, it was fantastic. And so there's there's always stories with auctions. I think you know, I suppose if somebody asks me what I miss about auctions, is that sort of the unknown. Uh, whereas now I'm looking after private clients, and uh, you know, I'm selling some amazing watches, but there's just not that unknown. So you know that perhaps you know it's a different market now, but. Um, you know, those those days were were incredible for finding some rare pieces. Even I mean, I can recall when there was a, uh, a, there was an auction, a, a catalogue from um, Bonhams. It was Bonhams and Butterfields. Uh, so Bonhams uh, took over Butterfields Auction House in San Francisco, uh, and I flicked through the catalogue, um, and it was a sort of jewellery generally sale. And there was a Patek Philippe in there. I was like, oh my goodness, that's uh, and I was the head of the watched a pop at the time um and i called them up i said look this is a super rare watch it's got to be redrawn you know it's in at ten thousand pounds it's pink gold reference 1518 with a pink dial it's i mean it's just incredible then we draw it and, and recatalogued it correctly and so you know those those sort of stories don't happen as much now but mm. you know it sold for a huge sum of money so it was a good job it did uh so yeah lots of little stories like that I mean, I could really go on for hours, and I'm sure your listeners might get a little bit bored of it. Maybe we'll have to have a coffee and, and <laughs> just talk about and talk about those stories. What I know you're you're quite interested in uh, vintage watches uh, in particular. What is it you find appealing about vintage? Um, it's a good question. I'll do something appealing about vintage. Well, I think I think there's the history element. Um, to me, the period, I mean, particularly interested in chronographs, always have been. Uh, and I suppose the heyday for those is the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, there's the element of um, the differences in the watches. It feels a lot more uh, personal, and you feel as though the watch is made more by hand back then, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, even back up until, like, if you're looking at a Patek Philippe chronograph from the 1980s or a modern Patek Philippe chronograph, there's just a different feel to them. There's a different look to them. The The, the manufacturing process was much, much more different. Um, and there was more humans rather than machines. Uh, so that element is something that's always uh, intrigued me because I think watchmaking is an art. And, um, you know, this, the, having some having a watch which you can say, yes, that's probably passed through different people's hands. You know, there's a, a, a dial maker's made that. There's a, a gentleman or lady who's made the hands. You know, the, you just get a different feel for it. There's, that's my personal take of it. Some people will only buy modern watches. I mean, obviously, a modern watch becomes vintage over a certain amount of time. But yeah, yeah. I'm not, my, I mean, I sell. I'm, you know, I sold a Patek Philippe Nautilus just last week from 2022. You know, it's less than a year old. So, you know, when you when you're 
when you're collecting it's very different to when you're dealing uh i wouldn't personally uh have that watch in my collection uh great watch nothing wrong with it but it's 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 my interest is in the probably pre-80s as a whole yeah you mentioned in another interview about uh posting on instagram the things that you are or only things that you're genuinely interested in and i know that ranges from small micro brands that are you know fairly inexpensive up to some of the more exotic uh, pieces that you you get your hands on why is authenticity so important to you um well i think you know those smaller brands i just i just believe you know we 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 we're fed lots of information about amazing prices and i think the market has changed alluding to a question you asked earlier about what things what's changed you know, I think you know. I do. I do see TikTok uh, through my son, and I see the, the the videos of people buying watches and flipping watches. And there's a different sort of subworld going on there, which I don't tend to deal with. But so there's it's everyone seems to be money led, which yeah, I, I get it. Everyone needs to make a living, but there's to me there's an element of, I'd, you know, history and all those things. And I'm just very interested in watches and there's the aesthetics of a watch which appeals to me straight away um and i think you can get a wonderful watch from like one of the micro brands we mentioned baltic thurl and mari which are sort of historical nods to them in in terms of a design element uh but also you know i'm very conscious that not everyone has lots of money so I, I always feel as though there's a lot of people could be put off about getting into watches because they think they've got to spend thousands of pounds on these yeah. things because their yeah. their instagram feed is 100%. bombarded with you know fifteen thousand pound rolexes here and then and fifteen thousand pounds is a huge money amount 100%. of money and I, I just think there's got to be a sort of respect level there that you know, not everyone can afford this, but there's a there's a great little price point, a sweet spot at five, six hundred pounds, where you can get where people can, you know, afford that, and and then they can get a fantastic watch for that. Whether it's a micro brand Baltic, or it's a a, a nice chronograph Swiss from 1950s, you know, in a in a you know relatively thin gold case, but uh, yeah, great little piece, and you're wearing a bit of piece piece of history on your wrist and. Uh, it's a talking point, and I think that's really that's really always has interested me. So you know, I was no, I think the FT did an article. With it. I think they entitled it "The Man Who Likes No No Name Brands" or something like that. I suppose it was very true. <laughs> and, you know, all those all those unusual no name brands have always intrigued me. Yeah, I, I mean, I like what you've touched on there about you know not everyone has that money to spend on a watch which is which no. is very very true and people have priorities you know some people have the 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 luxury of being able to afford these more expensive ones but it is really nice to see that you are promoting brands that you feel are, are genuinely good quality and um, very good in what they do as well so yes yeah and i think those like the baltics and the fellow i think they've they've come around and the, when you put those watches in uh, in your hand and you look at it and it's in beautifully made case the dials printing you know it's fantastic and i think you you know those uh, i think i probably sold i'm not a brand ambassador for, for baltic but in any shape or form and every baltic I've, I've i've got 
you know, probably six or seven of them, or might be a bit more. I've, I've bought and paid full price. People often say, you a Baltic brand ambassador. <laughs> no, I just put them on there. And, and, and strangely enough, quite a few people have bought them from them since that. But, uh, you know, that's just because I've been around watches for a long time. And, I, you know, I do know what I like personally. Uh, and I put that onto my sort of social media and some people pick up on it and agree. 